If you'd like to open your Bibles um, to Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13 through until the end of chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, and you'll find that on page 1204 of the Pew Bibles. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. This is God's word. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, for it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son. He has been made perfect forever. We give God thanks for the reading of his word. Can I encourage you to turn back to Hebrews chapter 6 and 7 that we're going to be thinking about together. And while you're doing that, let me say thank you to Ian and to Ken and to Andy and to Brian for leading us so far. I don't really know what it says about me, though, whenever we're singing, praise my soul, the King of Heaven, and I'm singing the words that Ian is singing, not the words that are on the screen. Who is that? Maybe says something about what age I really am. (laughs) We're turning to a challenging passage this evening in Hebrews 6 and 7. Um, And so before we go any further, as always, we want to pray for God's help as we come to study this passage together. So let's pray. Father, we do just want to pause and to stop And we want to remember that this is your word that we come to study. And so, Father, may you speak to us now, we pray. Father, open up your word, illuminate it to us in a way in which we've never seen it, we've never understood it before. Father, be in this time. And Father, help us, change us from within to become more Christ-like because of it. Father, take anything away that is of me, and may this just be you speaking to your people, we pray. And we ask it in your name. Amen. How confident are you this evening? How confident are you this evening as a Christian that you'll keep going in the Christian life? How confident are you in your faith? Maybe you're here this evening and you're feeling really confident. This Christian thing, I've been doing it for years. I've got it sussed. It's no problem. Or maybe you wonder how you're going to keep on going. Things are hard. Things are difficult. And if you're honest, when you've got very little confidence left in your Christian faith. 
Well, tonight, as we come to study this passage together, this long passage from 6.13 to the end of chapter 7, if we're feeling confident, I want our confidence to be destroyed. And if we're feeling despairing, I want that to be taken away. Because this passage is all about Christ, the only thing that we can be confident in. We come to a passage this evening that's a huge encouragement. And encouragement is something that we all need. That word that's spoken just at the right time, that personal encouragement to help us keep on going, to help us keep on moving forward. If you remember, as we've been studying this book, we've been talking about the fact that the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jews who've become Christians, but they're feeling the pressure and they're tempted because of persecution to abandon their faith. But the writer urges them, stick with Jesus. Last week, we looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 6, and we saw in them a warning. But now from verse 13 and right into chapter 7, the writer moves on because he wants to give now some encouragement, some real positives of what it means to keep on persevering right until the end. He moves on from verse 13 of chapter 6 to show us what we can be confident in. And there's two points he wants to make, and that's two points we're going to think about this evening. We can be confident in our faith tonight because God made a promise to Abraham. And then secondly, Jesus is a priest forever in heaven. So firstly then, God made a promise to Abraham, and we're in chapter 6 and verse 13. Let's look at what God said to Abraham. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I'll surely bless you and give you many descendants. Now God made this promise to Abraham after Abraham was asked to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And we find that in Genesis 22. But this was not the first time that God had made a promise to Abraham. You see, some people say that the Bible is a book of two halves. We have Genesis 1 to 11 as the first half, and then Genesis 12 to the end of Revelation as the second half. And the point being made is this, that the initial promises to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 are the turning point of the whole Bible. Some people view it that it's from Genesis 12 onwards that the story is all about how God will deliver what he has promised. If you know anything about the life of Abraham, you'll know that throughout his life, God reassured him at various points that he really did mean what he had said. God didn't specify to him a time whenever these promises would be fulfilled, But what he wanted to do was he wanted to give Abraham complete confidence in what he had to say. And so to make sure he did this, God would often repeat them. Once should have been enough for these promises because this was God speaking. But God knows what we are like as humans. But then in Genesis 22, there was an added ingredient. And we see it in verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. 
In Genesis 22, the promises were not simply repeated, but they were combined with an oath from God. And we're told the reasons for this in verses 16 to 18. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Now, if any of us in this room were asked to appear as a witness in a court of law, then we're asked to take an oath. Human beings often tell lies, and so taking an oath is a guarantee, well, supposed to be a guarantee, that it's truth that we're going to speak. But what about God? Why did he confirm his promises to Abraham with an oath? Look at verse 17 again. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. So on its own, word, so on its own the word of God would have been good enough. But for the benefit of mankind, for the benefit of us, God knows what we're like. God knew what Abraham was like. God formally staked his reputation on delivering the goods. God was saying, this is what I'm going to do. God was promising it. He was making an oath that this was what he was going to do. So what does it have to do with us? Well, the oath wasn't just for the benefit of Abraham. It was also to give encouragement to those who would be known as the true descendants of Abraham, the heirs, as verse 17 puts it. You see, God's promise was not simply to bless one man, but to bless a group of people, to bless generations of people who would be linked to Abraham in a special way, and to give them encouragement, to give them confidence in these promises, God confirmed his promise to Abraham with an oath. Or in the words of verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, his promise and his oath, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. See, whenever we become a follower of God, whenever we give our lives to Christ, whenever we have faith in Jesus, we become true children of Abraham. We become the heirs that verse 17 is talking about. And therefore, we become inheritors of the promise made to Abraham many thousands of years ago. And so that means whenever we become heirs, we are now standing under God's blessing and not his condemnation. And the great news for us this evening is that it's all to do with God's word. Our confidence this evening comes from the fact that God has said it. It's not coming from the fact of how great we're feeling this week. It's not coming from the fact of how many things we think we've done this week that have been good for our faith. Our confidence this evening comes from the fact that God said it. 
It's not coming from how passionately we believe what God says, because over a period of time, our confidence will wane. Our trust may go up and down, but the key truth to remember is that God has said it. God has made a promise. God has made an oath. And he did this to show that what he said is true. He didn't give Abraham a timeline of when these things were going to come through, but he said, if I've promised it, I'm going to do it. But what does that mean for us tonight? Surely you can sit there and say, Jeffrey, this was good for Abraham. This was what he needed. But what about me? Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. How confident are you tonight in your faith? How confident are you that if tomorrow never comes for you, that you'll be standing in eternity with God? Well, the writer says here, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Maybe in your faith at the minute you're feeling like you're a boat being tossed about in the middle of a huge storm. Your life at the minute seems to be getting drowned out by doubts and confusion. There's turmoil going on everywhere around you. Or maybe when I ask that question, how confident are you where you would be if you never saw tomorrow? That you are afraid that you might be heading for an eternity without God. Well, you might be. And therefore, for some in this room, fears like this may be eternally justified. But what this passage shows us is when we are followers of God, we have confidence because our hope is in Christ. Anchors are a clear and they're a familiar sign of security. We all know what an anchor is, we all know what an anchor does. They go down into the sea, they hold the boat secure, but this one is different. This one goes up into heaven. This anchor goes into heaven where Christ is now. That's how secure our hope is whenever we are a follower of God. Our anchor is Christ. So how confident are you this evening? Well, what we are to treasure from Hebrews 6 is that when we turn to Christ, when we become heirs, when we become children of Abraham, we are guaranteed to experience God's blessing when we meet him face to face because God has promised it. So we can be confident on our faith because God made a promise to Abraham. But then secondly, we can be confident because Jesus is a priest forever in heaven. And for that, we move into chapter 7. And for many people, the 28 verses that make up this chapter may be seen as incomprehensible, 
are irrelevant. I just don't get what it's saying. I was talking to Bill last weekend about preaching on Melchizedek, and his advice was, keep it simple. And so here we go. If you don't listen to anything else or follow anything else from here on, please listen to this next little bit, because I'm trying to summarize here what this chapter is about. When we say that Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, it's saying that he is a priest in a class by himself. It's saying that Jesus is unique. No one else is or can be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Only Jesus. He's in a class by himself No one else can be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But let's think a bit further about this. Who was Melchizedek? Well, verse 1, we're told Melchizedek was king of Salem. Psalm 76 tells us that this was the ancient name for the city of Jerusalem. And he was a priest of God most high. He lived, we're told in verse 1, at the time of Abraham. And yet, what does it say in verse 3? He was without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, and he remains a priest forever. And then it goes on in verse 4, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham, remember this is the one that we say these promises were made, that's the turning point of the Bible, give him a tenth of the plunder. So who was Melchizedek? Well, you can go to any library, you can Google Melchizedek, and you could be reading information from now to next Sunday. Some believe that Melchizedek was Shem, the son of Noah. Others believe Melchizedek was an angel or some other celestial being. But we have nothing in the Bible, nothing in the text to support this. There's a lot of people would argue that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. But it's hard to see that that is, it's hard to see that that is who Melchizedek is because of the description as resembling the Son of God. There's pages and pages of ink have been spilt on who Melchizedek is, but what we can go on is what the Bible tells us. We know very little about the person of Melchizedek, but we know what the Bible wants us to know. And so if there's this mysterious Melchizedek that we know very little about, why is he the focus of Hebrews chapter 7? Well, I want to say straight away, he's not. The focus of Hebrews 7 is Christ. As Christ is the focus of every other chapter and every book of the Bible, We know so few details about Melchizedek because we're told all that we need to know to point us to Christ. This passage is about Jesus. This passage is teaching us more about Christ. It's pointing us on towards him. 
This passage is about giving Christ all the glory. But what does Melchizedek show us? What does Melchizedek teach us? Well, he's used to show us that the priestly line from the tribe of Levi was only temporary. Verse 11, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Now, the reason we know another priest who was not from the tribe of Levi was to come is because of Psalm 110. And it's Psalm 110 that's quoted in verse 17 and verse 21. Now, we don't know exactly whenever the psalm was written, but we know that it definitely was written after it came into, we know that it definitely was written after the Levitical priesthood came into existence. And it's all about the future Messiah, who according to Psalm 110 would be both a king and a priest. But here is the really important point to grasp. The psalm promises that when the Messiah arrived, he would not be a priest from the tribe of Levi, but he'd be a priest from the tribe following in the footsteps of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 tells us that there's a day coming whenever the Levitical priesthood would come to an end. They were only serving a temporary purpose. The system was never meant to continue indefinitely. Something or rather someone greater was coming. A priest was coming who would fulfill God's purposes, who would fulfill God's promises that had been made to Abraham, Jesus, our great high priest. And when we look at this passage, when we look at what this is teaching us about Christ coming in the order of Melchizedek, It's pointing to Christ as our great high priest. In ancient Israel, the only way you could become a priest was if you were of the tribe of Levi. But Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. His parents were both from the tribe of Judah. So how could he be a priest? Well, this is where we need Melchizedek. Melchizedek was not from the tribe of Levi, we're told. So although many people sincerely believed a person had to be a Levite to be served as a priest, Scripture leads us in a different direction. It tells us there's a different way. And so therefore, despite his well-documented descent from the tribe of Judah, Christ could serve as our priest before God the Father. But as I said at the beginning, it's pointing, it out, it's pointing out to us that Christ was a completely different priest. And what a priest he was. Look at verse 20. Others became priests without any oath, but he, Jesus, became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. We're told the Levitical priesthood, it came to an end whenever the man died. They couldn't be a priest after they were dead. But Jesus is able to serve his followers forever. Look at verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he's a permanent priesthood. 
Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And the next few verses tell us what this means. Verse 26, such a high priest meets our needs, one who's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That's what this is all about. Jesus is coming in the order of Melchizedek. He is a completely different priest. He's out on his own. No one else could be following in this line. Jesus is our one true great high priest. And this priesthood is eternal, never ending, securing eternal life for the heirs of Abraham. Christ lives and reigns forever, so there will never be a time when he cannot be our great priest, whenever he cannot show the sacrifice that he made at Calvary for us. And so when we die, Christ will be there. When we die who are followers of God, Christ will point to the wounds he earned on the cross and our debt will be taken by the account he has already paid. Look at what it says. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Christ as our priest wasn't bringing something to sacrifice. He was bringing himself. He is our great high priest. And so these passages of scripture that we've been thinking about this evening, do go home and read it again. We've only scratched the surface of this. But a passage in which we could skip over and say, I don't get what's going on here. Hopefully we leave this evening with two simple truths. That we can be confident because of the promise God made to Abraham. And we can be confident because Christ is our eternal priest forever. There are not many things in life which are a certainty. Who was it once said, the only things in life that are certain are death and taxes? It seems to be the only thing in life is certain that if you're running late, that's whenever there's a traffic jam. Or whenever you're running late, that's whenever you can't find the thing you need to bring with you. But because God made a promise to Abraham, And because Jesus is a priest in heaven forever, then every single heir of Abraham is guaranteed a future with God for eternity. We can be confident tonight because Christianity 
is what Christ has done for us and not what we can do for Christ. I began this evening by asking us to think how confident we are. And here is a passage which gives us huge encouragement to be confident, not in ourselves, not in what we have done, not in what we can do, but we can be confident and we can be encouraged. Confident in Christ, knowing that what God has said is true, knowing that God will keep his promises, those promises made to Abraham. And we can be confident because we have a unique, our one true great high priest. So let's leave this place this evening confident in the truths of Hebrews 6 and 7. Let's pray. Father, may we leave this place this evening with our confidence in you and in you alone. And then in turn, may that reflect in everything that we do. And we ask it in your name. Amen. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Um,